Square. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to answer some questions from our mailbag, talk about some of the Trump administration's recent executive actions, and make a special announcement. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. I'm Sam Sanders, and I'm literally just passing through. Are you still here? Barely. It's nice to see you, Sam. Thanks for coming downstairs. Can't keep this guy out of the studio. (laughs) Hey, guys, I should just say that I am hosting this from the basement of the White House. Are you at the pool? No, I'm not in the swimming pool. Yeah, the swimming pool, which is right under the briefing room. No, I'm in, uh, I I guess I'm past the deep end. (laughs) Aren't we all? In our small work area here. There you go. So as we've mentioned before, Sam's last time co-hosting this podcast will be on February 10th at our live show in D.C. He's embarking on a new project. And Sam, we are, of course, totally going to miss you. I miss you guys. But we have good news, happy news. Drum roll. Scott Detrow will be stepping in as official co-host of the podcast. I'm excited. That's not no. Right. No, 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 try it again. Try it again. Say it again. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> That's about as excited as Scott actually does get. So, Scott, <laughs> listeners have heard you host this show many times, like, I don't know, two days ago. But this is kind of like making your relationship, our relationship, Facebook official. That's true, which is interesting because never in my life have I made a relationship Facebook official. Even though you're married. <laughs> yep, I'm not married on Facebook. What does your wife think about this? She's, I think she's on board. I mean, it hasn't been a tension point, I guess. But <laughs> now it is. Um. So, Sam, do you have any advice for Scott? I actually do. I oh, thought okay. about this. You need an enemy and a hero, a constant enemy and a constant hero. My like, constant, within the wait, advice no, to no, Donald no. Trump. Nope, nope. My constant enemy is Drake. My constant hero is Beyonce. Okay. Figure out your own. Okay. Two, if you bring tea into the booth, make the tea 12 minutes before we start recording so it has <laughs> enough time to cool down. Okay. Is With those major keys. Yes, that's my advice for you. Those Oops. are good tips. Thank you, Sam. Aww. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, Sam, uh, Thank you for being here. We are going to boot your butt out of the studio because you have other stuff to work on. All but, right. Uh, listeners, you can catch Sam's last show as co-host live in D.C. on February 10th. You can get tickets at nprpresents.org. So, Sam, now I think is when I walk you to the helicopter and wave goodbye and you fly away I would take a helicopter ride right now. It's really okay. sunny outside. Yeah. Okay. I guess we'll snap or something because that's what <laughs> Sam, right, Sam likes. All right, see you later. <laughs> All right. Um, Before we answer some questions and talk about the day's news, one more bit of housekeeping. Our regular weekly roundup, which we usually post on Thursday nights, will instead be out on Friday evening. Maybe in time for your evening commute, hopefully. Uh, That's because there's a big Republican retreat in Philadelphia planned for Thursday, and we want to be able to talk about any news that comes out of that. they're supposed to figure out their plan on uh, Obamacare. So there could be big news. Um, again, the weekly roundup, Friday evening, not Thursday. Can I say something about that? Because I think I also need to circle back to a major error that I made in our last podcast. Yeah. So uh, they're talking about Obamacare. President Trump's going to be there. Vice President Pence is going to be there. Less importantly, Susan Davis and I are going to be there. I'm getting on a train right after we finish this. Uh, also there, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Theresa May, and she is not the head of state of the United Kingdom, like I said. Uh, The head of state is, of course, Queen Queen. Elizabeth II. I'm sorry uh, to make up for it to Queen Elizabeth. I will vote for the crown in the SAG-AFTRA awards, which we're voting in (laughs) later this week. Scott. Scott still has a chance for that knighthood. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. (laughs) 
and talk about a few items from the news today. First, on immigration. Today, President Trump is going to take executive action. He's going to sign two directives while visiting the Department of Homeland Security related to immigration. Uh, One uh, is about border security and immigration enforcement improvements. The other is called enhancing public safety in the interior of the United States. Um, Not clear exactly what that means, but of course... President Trump ran on building a wall and on immigration enforcement. And I think that this whole thing is going to be an interesting tension point that we might see start to play out up in Philadelphia because this stuff is really expensive. Like, like what is it, like $15 billion so, to the estimate for the wall? And Republicans do not like paying for things they can't fund. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was looking into last night was just refreshing myself on just how much this wall could cost. Um, John Burnett, who covers the southern border here for us, uh, and some other news outlets have done the cost estimates. And you it would cost something like 3 to $4 million per mile. Uh, and in some of the rougher areas of terrain, $13 million. That all comes out to something like $25 billion with a B uh, for how much it could cost. And that's going to be a really interesting tension point that might start to to show itself this week uh, with congressional leaders talking about their game plan because Republicans in Congress do not like to spend money on things that they can't pay for right away. They obviously have no interest in raising taxes to pay for this wall. And Mexico is not showing up to pay for this wall anytime soon. So uh, that's going to be... A big tension point. How do you get a conservative Congress to pay for these big projects? All right. Moving on. Yesterday, uh, President Trump signed presidential memorandums to revive the stalled and controversial Dakota Access Pipeline and Keystone XL Pipelines. Um, Those may now move forward, but clearly not without a fight from environmental groups. Yeah, I mean, that's no surprise. He talked about the Keystone XL pipeline a lot when he was running for president. Uh, That was a major tension point on the environmental front. It became kind of a symbol of the larger climate change battle and the larger, you know, jobs versus environment battle is the way both sides looked at this, Um, far outpacing its actual impact on the number of jobs created and the effect that it'll have on the global climate uh, environment overall. But it's still it's a big project very controversial, and we're just going to restart that battle all over again, it looks like, now that, that he's taken the step. And in other signs of, hey, we have a new president in town, and there's a new administration, and a government that was run by Democrats for eight years is now going to be run by Republicans, the Trump administration has instructed the Environmental Protection Agency, at least temporarily, they say, uh, not to post on social media, put out press releases, or speak to the media. And we've heard reports of similar directives at other agencies. So is that normal, Scott? I will say that I spent a lot of time covering the EPA. And while they do post on their social media accounts a lot and while they do post a lot of things online, it's not like they were talking much to reporters to begin with. Still, I think uh, the the across the board um, blackout certainly has a lot of people in the environmental community very concerned especially when you saw what happened with the Interior Department over the weekend as well. They were barred from tweeting or posting on social media after somebody was comparing the crowd size of Trump to Obama in kind of a disparaging way. Yeah, Yeah. it was a retweet, but it was a retweet that got them in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I think it plays into people's worst assumptions and fears about what a Trump administration could do in cracking down on 
you know, press freedoms and being able to talk to administration officials and getting kind of relevant statistical information out there. Uh, finally, in the last episode, we played some tape of our own Mara Eliasson asking White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer about the unemployment rate. He didn't answer her question directly. Well, yesterday in his second briefing, Mara was back and she asked him another question. If three to five million people voted illegally, that is a scandal of astronomical proportions. Doesn't he want to restore Americans' faith in their ballot system? Wouldn't he want an investigation of this? Well, I, I you know. This is a, but, but Mara, you, as I've noted, and that of course times, comes in response to something that Donald Trump told leaders of the House and the Senate, who were at the White House for a reception earlier this week, that he believed three to five million people voted illegally in 2016. And look, we'll work. I'm asking you, why not investigate something? Well, well, that could, is a, maybe we will. The biggest scandal in American electoral history: three to five million people voting illegally. I, and I think we. I, We'll see where we go from here. But right now, the focus that the president has is on putting Americans back to work. It was a comment that he made on a longstanding belief. Now, that is a claim that he has made before. It is false. There, there is no proof that anyone has been able to produce, including his team. And yet the president continues to repeat it. So Mara's question was kind of like calling him on the bluff and saying, if that's really happening, why isn't there more outrage? Great idea, Mara. President Trump responded this morning. Do you want to read that tweet that he sent out this morning? Yeah, he didn't actually respond to Mara. But in the Donald Trump tweeting hour, actually, it was a little late. It was uh, in the seven o'clock hour, not the six o'clock hour. Trump tweeted two things. I will be asking for a major investigation into all caps into voter fraud, including those registered to vote in two states and those who are legal and even those who registered to vote who are dead and many for a long time. Depending on results, we will strengthen up voting procedures. Uh, I think one thing he's doing here, which he's done a lot before, is conflating a couple different things. Uh, There are a lot of people registered in multiple states because when people move, they register in new states. The states are supposed to kick back and clear people from the rolls. They don't often do that. Uh, Being registered in in multiple states is a thing that happens. Of course, voting in multiple states is bad, but... But doesn't actually happen. But doesn't mean exactly that there is evidence that there's widespread... Widespread, you know, uh, voting in multiple states. Uh, I think even Steve Bannon, who is Trump's uh, chief counselor in the White House, is registered in two different states. That doesn't mean he's engaging in voter fraud. Then there's the other side of this coin when there become voter purges, right? Voter roll purges. Then you get people saying, oh, it's rigged. And look what they're trying to do here. Uh, You remember during the Democratic primary when the rolls were purged in Brooklyn, New York, Mm -hmm. and people were saying, oh, this is just there to benefit Hillary Clinton when they're trying to do what you're talking about, which is actually make sure that the correct people are on the rolls who can vote. And the end of Trump's tweet gets at that. He says, depending on results, we will strengthen up voting procedures. A lot of people, voting rights advocates, are concerned that this could become a pretext for making it even harder for people to vote. And and in the past, Republican state legislatures have, have done things like voter ID and other things that have made it harder primarily for minorities to vote. Well, he could call for that and he could push for that, but that's not something he could really do himself because that's that's something that's mostly done on the state level, almost exclusively done on the state level. It's, it's also, you know, these these first few days of the Trump administration, including the voter fraud thing, including the crowd size thing, just continues to show how obsessed Trump is and his team is with his legitimacy as president. 
Okay, we will talk more about these and other stories in the Roundup on Friday. But for now, on to the questions, which I've missed questions, so. Um, Our first question comes from Julia in Chicago. Julia writes, I'm in eighth grade and I love the podcast. Thank you, Julia. You were a nerd after our own hearts. This past weekend, I went to my first march. One thing I heard again and again was that we should call Congress. I've written a letter and an email once before, but since I live in a blue state, does it really make a difference if I call my senators and representatives if, for the most part, they agree with me? Um, yes, it does. It does matter. And, and this is an interesting question because going back to the Tea Party, a lot of Republicans were really pressured by uh, conservative activists, by Tea Partiers, to not agree with the Democrats on anything. Because for all the focus that we put on where parties disagree, there are a lot of things that need bipartisan support to happen and do happen with bipartisan support. So a good example of that is Chuck Grassley, who was a member of the original Gang of Eight, the senator from Iowa, when it came to Obamacare and talking about health care. And he seemed to show some openness potentially on how to legislate something with the health care law as soon as he went home for those town halls and he got all that pushback from his supporters he was off any kind of potential to to negotiate on this and w- was taking a much harder line. So the point is, if you want to have your representative have your back and fight forcefully for you, then you do need to reach out to them. And they keep a tally of these things. So even if it's a senator from a blue state and they're getting a lot of calls from from people who are liberals, uh, they will be sometimes go to the floor and say, I got 1,200 phone calls from my constituents about this. It really matters. They can also hook you up with a tour of the Capitol when you're on the phone with them, too, and for next time you're in D.C. Also, tours of the White House. They do that, too. They're your conduit for tours of the White House. Okay, on to the next question. It's from Devin in San Francisco, who writes, During the recent confirmation hearings, many of the nominees have seemingly dodged questions about their opinions on specific policies. Many have outright abstained from answering them altogether. I can't help but wonder what's up with that. Why don't these nominees simply provide whatever answers the committee wants to hear? Short answer is because they have the votes. So they don't really need to answer all of the questions that, you know, opponents might have, for example, uh, because, frankly, they can get through. Democrats did away with a rule in 2013 that required nominees to get 60 votes to move to the floor. I would posit, by the way, if you think about the kinds of nominees that Donald Trump has picked, some very unconventional nominees, that there are a handful of names there who might not have gotten through if there were 60 vote, if there was a 60 vote threshold, meaning that there would need to be some Democrats to come over to the other side, or they'd be withdrawn, or they wouldn't be put up in the first place. But because of what you have with the 60 vote threshold, it's certainly much easier for them to bypass the kinds of thorny questions and issues that they don't want to have to answer. And if you notice nominees not answering specific questions now, you will really notice in in a few weeks or a month or so when uh, President Trump's pick for the Supreme Court is testifying before the Senate because judges never want to get into kind of hypotheticals about cases they might eventually hear. And that is all that senators, especially for senators from the opposite party, want to ask about. So there's a lot of I couldn't possibly comment on that. It could come before me. That's true, especially on abortion. They get asked a lot about that. But I will say that the Supreme Court nominees still have that 60 vote threshold. The go to answer that a lot of uh, Donald Trump's nominees have given and and it must have been something that they drilled on and practiced was 
I'm not a legislator. My job will be to implement the laws as they are written. You, the Senate, helps write those laws. It's a good answer. All right. Well, thank you, Devin, for the question. And that's all we have time for today. Don't forget to send us your questions. You can email them to us at nprpolitics at npr.org. We know there's a lot going on, and you can keep up with it all at npr.org or, of course, on the NPR One app or your local public radio station. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.